Coming up on Up in the Blue Seats, we talk about Coach Quinn's line matchups and the possibility of a Henrik Lundqvist trade. We also chat with Hall of Famer, former teammate, and good friend, Phil Esposito. And finally, Stevie Van Zandt drops by to chat about his friendship with James Dolan. All that is next on Up in the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Welcome to the Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Post Rangers beat writer Larry Brooks, Hall of Famer Phil Esposito, and Steven Van Zandt drop by the podcast today. But now, here's your host of Up in the Blue Seats, former Rangers great, number 10 on his jersey, but number one in our hearts, Ron Duguay. Hello, so welcome in. And yes, it's been a busy week again for the New York Rangers. They come off a loss, 5-2, against the Predators at home. It was a game where I believe their goaltender won that game. Soros played on his head. The Rangers still performing well, still controlling the puck well. Uh, They have the Maple Leafs this Friday. Rangers are now 16, 13-4, 36 points. Tied for 12 in the East with five points out of that last playoff spot. And the player that's having a breakout season that the Rangers were really hoping for, and that's Artemi Panarin. With his 20th goal in 33 games, he has now proven to be the player that they thought he was going to be. But let's get into it all with the guy who's been covering the Rangers forever. Welcome in. Larry Brooks, the beat writer for the New York Post in this weekly segment. You can follow Larry on Twitter, NYP underscore Brooksy. Larry, uh, another week of, um, I would say, exciting Ranger hockey as they continue to play their game, play the game that they want to play, puck control. Um, What uh, I would say what Coach Quinn is looking for is an improvement. And uh, first I need to talk Artemi Panarin. This looks like we've seen and we've known that this guy can score goals. He's been averaging 30 goals a year, but now within 33 games, he's got 20 goals. It looks like it's going to be a breakout season for Panarin, everything that the Rangers were hoping for. Uh, he's a brilliant player. He's he's one of those players. You know, there are a lot of players, when you see them every game, you see more of their flaws. And so they don't look quite as good after game 20 as they did after game three, and then after game 50 as they did after game 30, because you see what's wrong with them every single night. Well, Panarin, you see what's right with him every single shift. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant player. Every time he hops onto the ice, the Rangers have a chance to score a goal. He is strong on the puck. You know, he has obvious open ice skills. But what impresses me so much is is his game in tight spaces. I mean, he'll win the puck. He'll make plays along the boards and along, you know, in, in traffic. Great vision. Um, you know, he is, he's shooting at a higher percentage right now than he's been, but he's taking great shots. And so I'm not sure that his shooting percentage is going to uh, go down so much as over the course of the year. He seems to fit with everyone with whom David Quinn throws him on the ice with. So um, he, he has been a smash hit on Broadway. Just just a brilliant player. Yeah, and I love the fact he's wearing number 10. So he's representing 10 really well. well what I'm seeing in him is that uh, 
Coaches talk about having quick feet, keep your feet moving. But with him, whenever he's managing the puck, his hands are so quick, so it's hard to defend. And there's a level of comfort that I see with him. Like, he really appears to be happy, happy on the ice, happy to be in New York, happy playing at the Garden where some players will feel the pressure and the tension. But for him, he's in a good, calm place. And would you uh, give some of that credit to Coach Quinn, making him feel comfortable? I think, uh, listen, I think the organization deserves some credit. I, I certainly think that that uh, David has, has uh, uh, over these first couple of months, has, has shown great ability to coach a great player. I think it's not always easy to coach a great player. And um, I, I think the Rangers are doing just fine with him. And I agree with, you, with your assessment. He's smiling all the time. You see him after practice, he's smiling. You see, you see him in the hallway, he's smiling. Um, he, he seems to be an individual who is very, very comfortable in his own skin, knows who he is, knows what he wants, and he's going out and he's, he's, uh, he's, he's just been a joy to be around. And I was told, you know, in Columbus, he was very uncomfortable doing interviews in English and, and he didn't do a lot of interviews during the season. But, you know, since he's come to New York, he is, he has done his very best to be available as often as possible. He will chat. Um, he's he, again, he's, he's been a delightful individual. He's been a great player the first couple of months of the season. Yeah, some players just flourish when they're put on a bigger spotlight. Playing in Columbus, playing in Columbus, that's kind of seems secondary as far as cities. But when you bring them to New York and bring a player to the Big Apple and play at Madison Square Garden, wear that Ranger jersey, for some it's going to bring the best out of them because they, uh, they love the limelight and they perform that way. They can't wait to step on the ice. And I can tell you that's how I felt every time I stepped on the ice. So I'm seeing a lot of that in him. Now, you had mentioned... Uh, although he had been playing on different lines, different line mates, he still finds a way to perform. Let's talk about Coach Quinn still, because there's a lot of talk about uh, when's he going to stop mixing up the lines and kind of get set in certain lines, because it makes it for some players they find it's a little bit difficult. So are 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 you seeing a time where you feel like at one point he's going to have more set lines with certain players in certain positions? I, you know, he, they did have set lines when Zibanejad was out, and that's the interesting part of it. They they went, I think, nine or ten or eleven um, consecutive games with their with the same with the same line combinations, except for the couple where Kako missed because he had the flu. So when and uh, you know during those stretch of games, the Rangers uh, what were eight four and one without Zibanejad. So I I think that. When he has, you know, combinations that he likes, he's he he'll stick with them. When when he has combinations that aren't working, he's 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 quick on the trigger to to, to change them. And I think one of the issues is he's not quite sure whether they're better off with Ryan Strom in the middle or Ryan Strom on the right. I think that's one of the issues. I think I think they're probably better set up to win right now with Strom in the middle. But I'm not sure that that kind of fits the overall plan because that moves Heedle down to the third. That moves Howden down to the fourth line where he's not getting a lot of minutes. So I think there's a I think there is there is the Strom issue to figure out. And I also think, though, that he while he wants Kako, excuse me, to uh, to be a top six player. He's got to earn top six minutes. And over the last week or so, Kako's game has fallen off to a certain degree, and so he started on the fourth line the other night. 
Um, I suspect he'll probably be in the bottom six to start Friday, although honestly, I'm not sure. Um, so I, th- I think the Kako, uh, Kako's a, you know, is a bit of an issue there. I think Buknevich's um, inconsistency is a bit of an issue there. But I also know that David Quinn would love to have the same top nine every game. I think every coach would. All right. Well, you mentioned Heedle, and um, he's a player that uh, no longer rookie, young, still trying to figure out his game. He's a young kid, I would say, in body and in mind, and you see that on the ice. But last game, uh, I saw a strength in him, more confidence. He got some quality ice time. So how would you assess his game this year thus far? Oh, I think he's a much improved player um, than he was as a, as a, as a rookie. I, I think he's much more aware away from the puck. I think he's, he's uh, more competitive on the puck. And I think he's more comfortable in the middle. He played the wing most of last year and until the last couple of weeks. And I, I think this is where he belongs. I think he can exploit the open ice. Um, you know, again, it's, it's you, know, the, you know, the interesting thing with, with them is, too, a lot of a player's confidence comes from the power play. Um, Heedle is on the second unit, which is where he belongs, which is fine. However, the first unit generally stays out from between a minute 20 and a minute and 40. Uh, they, they stay out there forever. And a lot of times it's because they control the puck, but a lot of times it's because they just don't change. And so I think I think Heedle is probably would be a, a little better off probably getting 50 seconds of power play time instead of 20 seconds of power play time is shift. But I like the way his game is progressing. Yeah. Okay. So we have to uh, every. It seems like we're always talking goaltending because that's always in the news. It's kind of a back and forth. My question to you about Lundqvist: Do you see any takers? Uh, sometime before the trade deadline, some team wanting Henrik Lundqvist. I don't think it's part of the conversation at this point. I I don't think uh, there's any indication that Henrik wants to leave. Uh, he has the no trade. He has the no move. I doubt that the Rangers will go to him and ask him if he's uh, willing to move it. I, I think they they believe that if he wants to leave, that he'll come to them. So that's part A. Part B is no, I don't. I, I, I don't see a team coming after him at this point. Um, I don't see a Stanley Cup contender with the need for a number one. And I also, um, I think when you're trading a, a, a goaltender of that stature, goaltender almost of any stature, but certainly of that stature, and a goaltender who's been in one place for this long, and it didn't, wouldn't even have to be this long. It could be for six years, eight years, ten years. That trading a goalie in the middle of the season is a very difficult proposition because you have to be that goaltender is accustomed to playing one way, is accustomed to one way of doing things, is accustomed to his defense playing one way, and you're going to be asking the goaltender to come in late um, when a team's making its push and adjust and accommodate, and then the team has to accommodate to him. I think that's one of the reasons you see so few big-time goalies get traded in season. And the one or two that I can remember, I guess Ryan Miller really is 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 the one most recent big time goalie. Ryan Miller was traded in the middle of the season to St. Louis, and had a or at the deadline to St. Louis, and had a disastrous playoffs. And so, 
Um, I just don't see it happening. No, I, I think Lundquist is going to be here. I think he's going to be here through the end of his contract. Right. Okay. Well, I just felt like I needed to ask because there's so much conversation out there about goaltending. And I think probably the only situation that may arise is that a contender loses their number one goaltender. And then there might be some consideration. Otherwise, I think Lundquist stays here. He finished his career here. He's had a great career. He's been a great New York Ranger. So I'm going to leave it and end it that way with you, Larry, uh, uh, as the Rangers prepare and play against the Toronto Maple Leafs. All right, we're back. It's Ron Duguay, and this is part of the segment where I get to talk about other stuff other than hockey, although it can be connected to hockey. Uh, this week is a week of, uh, it's the holidays, and a whole bunch of parties, and there's some fundraisers, and I have two special guests with me right now that are, uh, I have a new friend and an old friend, and um, the one thing, I've been here since 1977 in New York, and the one thing that I've always appreciated, because I always felt protected was the NYPD. I have a special connection to a lot of them. The one thing I do really like, hockey-related, is when the NYPD go against the firemen once a year when they play hockey. But my guest today does not play hockey. He's a big Ranger fan, a Lieutenant uh, Kevin Schroeder. So, Kevin, welcome on the show. And uh, why don't you give us a little background on yourself in New York and hockey? Sure, Rod. Uh, I grew up right by Madison Square Garden. I grew up a New York Ranger fan and grew up uh, watching you guys play uh, I did 28 years with the NYPD. I retired as a first grade detective, and now I have my own security firm. Um, and it's been a great, uh, it's been a great uh, enjoying hockey. I love hockey. I played hockey. Unfortunately, I didn't play for the PBA team. However, I did play for the Midtown North Precinct team. So because of your position, you've reached out in a different category, wanting to help others. Tell us about your cause. Well, for many years, uh, me and a few of the guys from the precinct always raised some money for the widows and children. And about five years ago, I uh, reached out to a good friend, Stevie Van Zandt, who's always been pro-law enforcement and pro, you know, taking care of, uh, you know, giving, always giving. And I got him involved, and uh, Stevie really brought us to the next level. And we started a foundation called the Little Stevens Annual Policeman's Ball. And each year, we raise money for the uh, NYPD Detective Endowment Association Widows and Children, as well as the NYPD Arms Wide Open uh, foundation and the arms wide open basically gives it's run by two police officers one's active Merritt Riley and one's retired detective Danny Sprague and what that foundation does is raise money for police officers in NYPD who have um, uh, special children with special needs yeah so Stevie's on the line now I'm here how you doing yeah hi I'm doing well glad to uh finally meet you because uh, I've been a big fan of the band and the music. Um, and so, and I know having talking to Kevin that uh, once he mentioned to me that he had teamed up with you and I like, wow, this is going to the next level. So why don't you kind of let me know? Cause I know a lot of you've been such a success in the music business as an actor. At what point did you decide that you felt like you wanted to start sharing and giving back to others? Part of the entertainment thing, really, uh, you know, not just rock and roll, but, but uh, you know, the, the music business in general and, and, and sports, uh, you know, movie business, TV business, we're always the first ones to give, you know? When, 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 you know, when something, you know, God forbid a tragedy happens, you know, and money needs to be raised, the entertainment business is always there first. You know, I have my own foundation, the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation, that does, uh, uh, we, we do a music history curriculum. Uh, for kids trying to keep them in school, you know, trying to, uh, rate, you know, affect that dropout rate 
in schools, which is the epidemic. So that's what that's my main foundation. But when Kevin came to me, uh, you know, talking about it, uh, you know, it, it occurs to me that that you know, police in general just just mostly get bad publicity, regardless of how people feel about the police. I mean, in the end, it's for the kids anyway. It's for the handicapped kids. It's for the the widows and and the children. You know, so you know, we uh, we, we we're very proud of this thing, and uh, and we, we we've been very successful these last two years. Well, I commend you for that because uh, a lot of us have been blessed in so many ways. And when we have an opportunity to give back, we need to give back. And so tell us about Friday night, the event on Friday night, because it's kind of connected to hockey. Uh, the man that you're going to honor is someone that I know well also. So talk about your person that you've decided to honor this year. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, uh, we're going to be honoring uh, Jim Dolan, who's an old friend of mine, uh, you know, he runs the garden and, uh, and, and uh, you know, in the Knicks and various, various things. And, and uh, you know, I, I know him I know him for many, many years. So uh, we both have something in common because he, he loves rock and roll when he has a rock and roll band, actually. You know, so we, uh, you know, we had some fun with that. But, but uh, you know, he, he's just a guy who's actually quite humble, actually. And, and uh, took me a while to walk him into it. But... To talk him into it, and uh, I said, guys, he says, <laughs> he, you know, we we joke about it because he says, you know, if the if the Knicks lose a few games in a row, you know, everybody hates me, you know. <laughs> well, that you know why that's that's why I wanted to bring it up because I'm very familiar with Jim because of uh, what he does in community. A lot of people don't talk about because he has Garden of Dreams, and I participate in a lot of things with Garden of Dreams. And sometimes he does get a bad rap. So I thought that you know what we need to talk about this. Not only did I want to meet you and, and honor what you're doing, but for Jim Dolan, I know that uh, it doesn't uh, it goes unnoticed sometimes some of the good he does in the community. So it'll be this Friday, correct? Yes, yes. This Friday at the uh, Mandarin Oriental, we uh, we've been doing it there, and uh, you know they they really dip. they themselves have been big supporters of law enforcement. They give us a terrific deal, and uh, and we um, we have um, you know Max Weinberg's big band. You know Max Weinberg, a drummer in the East Street Band, also has a he has several different uh, things he does, but one of them one of them is a big band. So we have that. We have the big band, and, and then we have Gary U.S. Bond comes in and does a set. He's still fantastic. One of the great rock and roll pioneers. You know, quarter to three in New Orleans, all those hits he had. Uh, he always uh, makes it a great party. And then we got Killer Joe when everybody's really drunk and crazy at the end at night. You know, uh, they they're like a <laughs> they're like a local garage band. Uh, you know, so uh, you know it's a, it's it's a nice night. We. Um, we keep the speeches very short. You know what I mean? We don't, we don't, you know, we don't have a lot of speeches. And what we do is we, we tell people buy a table, and then don't come. So we can give the table to the police. You know, so that's what we do. <laughs> they, buy, they buy a table and they stay home, and then we give all the tables to the police and their families so the so the police can have a nice Christmas party. That one thing we do have in common, the you and I, we both had the pleasure of performing at Madison Square Garden. It doesn't get much better. You had your stick, I had my stick, and we made people laugh, and and we were pretty enjoyable. So, listen, good, good, good to talk with you. I'll see you on Friday. Fantastic, man. Thanks, Ron. And now we're back, and I want to invite in a very, very special guest to me. Into the New York Ranger fans... Um, a longtime friend. He was there when I got started in 1977. 
the first day, I walked in the office, and there he was, Phil Esposito. Espo, welcome to the show. Thank you. 1977? Yeah, 1977, Phil. Dudes were old. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. You were there. You were there when I first got there, and you were there when I left. Um, when I left, not to get into why I left, but I was asked. I went. I went to you, and I said, "Phil, if you ever get a chance to trade me to L.A., uh, please do, because I had met a woman there, and I wanted to live there. And so you were kind of kind enough to be able to trade me out there. So you there from the beginning and from the end, and in between, we had a whole lot of fun. We sure did, Ronnie. And you know the funny thing is. I often thought about that, you know, when I became general manager. Um, if a player didn't want to be there and wanted to be someplace else and it wasn't going to, because we weren't really going anywhere, our team. And uh, so I, I I did that. I remember doing that with Dennis Savard here in the Tampa Bay area. I did it with, um, oh, golly. Rob Ramage, I sent him to Montreal. He came to me and he said, look, Paul, he says, I have a chance to go to Montreal. My agent told me, and could you trade me there? I have a chance to win a cup. And I said, sure. I mean, we were an expansion team, and uh, we had no chance. And so I traded him there, and the same thing with you. And I just thought, why wouldn't a general manager do that for me? <laughs> So that yeah, well that's it, Phil. You understood it as a player. You understood it, and that's what uh, makes a better manager. If he's come from a place of having been a player, he understands what it's like to be a player, to be married, to have kids, to be settled in. I mean, trading a player is a big deal. Unless you really feel like you have to do it, you got to be careful when you do it because you're really messing someone's life. And that's kind of how I felt when Herb Brooks traded me away. I thought I had it going pretty good here in New York, and Herbie kept seeing me in page six. And it's funny, Phil, how it's gone full circle. Here I am uh, doing this work for the New York Post where the kind of the New York Post and page six would get me in trouble with Herbie. Well, hey, Ronnie, don't you remember when Sonny Werblin took over? He wanted you and uh, Barry Beck and I think Grash and, and Murdoch, all you single guys, to move into the city. Remember that? Yeah, absolutely, because he had uh, uh, Joe Namath. He had brought in Joe, and he saw what he can do with Joe. Broadway Joe, and uh, so he wanted us to uh, to make sure we can play, but he wanted us out, out and about, and I thought, you know what? You know, Sonny, I'm going to do my best here, and I think I can do this. <laughs> and that's when you, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, uh, you know, Studio 54 opened. Donnie Murdoch is uh, is a teammate. We got the young players uh, in Gresh, and, and then, then we had young-minded Phil Esposito. Oh, well, you guys kept me young. I can tell you, folks, every morning I'd pick up Dukes and I'd pick up Murdoch, and each one would take turns sleeping in the back seat before we were going to practice. And the other one, when I would live vicariously through them as they told me what they did the night before. It was fun. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> Phil wouldn't let us take a nap unless we told a story. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Phil, from what I remember – you were generally happy, right, in New York as a player. I know it was a little bit harder on you when you left Boston originally, but generally you were happy being a New York Ranger. After the first year, Ronnie, after the first year was absolutely devastating to me. Uh, plus, my second game with the Rangers, I got a high ankle sprain. And if anybody's ever had one, it's 
trying to skate on that is worse than having a break uh, in your ankle. And I came back way too early. I think I missed like about seven or eight games, and I came back, and I had to put my foot. I That's where the Lang skates came. And I would put my foot into this boot and um, tape it up and everything else. It was the wrong thing to do. People didn't know, you know, but I just wanted to play and I wanted to prove to the fans that I'd be worthy of that trade. And the following couple of years, we made it happen. But uh, that first year was a tough, tough year for me. Yeah, well, you made it up in 79 because 79 was a um, a special season. Uh, It was for me as a young man to be able to go to the finals and learn what it's like to win. But I also, for me, I learned what it's like to, to see leadership, and I saw a lot of that in you on and off the ice, although we didn't have fun. What what do you remember most about 1979 and us going to the finals? I remember most about after the first game, I went to um, Freddie Shiro, and I said, Freddie, listen, you know, I've been around. I, this is my, like, my 17th, 18th year playing. I said, we got to get out of Montreal. We played on a Thursday night and weren't going to play until Sunday. So we had Friday, Saturday there, and Montreal is a good town, as we know. And uh, I remember saying to Freddie, we got to get us out of town here. we got too many young guys on this team, and this is too good of a town. And he says, nah, I think everybody will be all right. Well, we stayed, and we had a good time. There's no doubt about it. All of us did, including myself. And then we ended up losing four straight. I really believe, had we gotten away, and I'm not going to change my mind over the years, had we gotten away and just stuck together, all of us, somewhere, I don't care if it was in the Laurentians. I don't care if we went back to go to Lake Placid. It didn't matter, uh, just so long as we got out of Montreal. Um, I think we would have prevailed, because let's not forget, I think we lost, what, two games in overtime? I think it was... And so we were really close. You know, we were close to winning the Cup that year. We really were. I wish we could have played Boston instead of Montreal. I I was praying for the Bruins to beat Montreal. And, of course, they got that too many men or power, too many men on the ice penalty or something. And Montreal, Guy Lafleur scored, and that was it. Yeah. Well, the one thing you had, you kept saying, listen, they're full of injuries. Boston's hurting. They're, they're just getting by. Right, and if we can, if they can just get by Montreal, this this going to be a hurting team. Now, do you think how losing off Nielsen and potentially not playing Nick Fotiu in that final round made a difference? I think losing Opie was very very big. I think Johnny Davidson hurting his knee was really really big. Also, um, um, Nicky, look, you're not going to have that kind of game in the playoffs that. Nicky brought to the table, in my estimation. So, you know, you've got to keep as many scorers on on the ice as possible so that you can um, outscore those those guys, the Montreal Canadiens, which was not going to be easy to do at our best. Um, so, but I think we missed, I really thought we missed Opie an awful lot. 
Opie was a real good player. Yeah, he was. So I need to change things up a little bit, Phil. So you and I got to do some special things off the ice, and one of them was ooh la la, Sasson, and the other was... Ah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. The other was, even better, was Hockey Sock Rock. Oh, that was fun, too. You know what, Ronnie? I sometimes, uh, in after a game or sometime we're, we're out, my wife and I are out, Bridget and I are out, and I've had a few drinks, Elsa. Throw down your stick, take off those gloves. <laughs> Grab that sweater and you're ready for love. Take off your gloves. Grab that sweater and you're ready for love. It's the hockey sock rock. It's the hockey sock rock. Don't think twice, honey, break the ice. You gotta come and do the hockey sock rock. Do you think we need to put the band back together? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm serious. I'm really serious. Can you imagine if we redid that with some really musicians? Because when you, when you think about who we have access to, because this was produced and written by Alan Thicke, uh, the late great Alan Thicke, who was a good friend of his. His son happens to be Robin Thicke. Now, can you imagine if the two of you got together, started singing? I'm friendly with Mark Rivera, sax player from Billy Joel. I'm uh, friends with uh, Marky Ramone from the Ramon band. He's the drummer. Can you imagine if we put these musicians together and decided that uh, we wanted to do something? In fact, I just talked to Stevie Van Zandt, all right, from Bruce Springsteen band. Can you imagine if we put those eyes together and we we went back and recorded this thing all over? Are you in? Uh, am I in? Well, we can do it for the geriatric ward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Phil, there's part. Phil, part of my show, I have to tell a story. My story of the past. So, I felt like you know, I was going to wait on the story for you to listen in because part of the story includes you. So, we get we get a gold record, correct? After selling a hundred thousand copies in Canada, we got a gold record. It was presented to us by Alan Thick in L.A. Do you remember that? I sure do, man. I it's still up on my wall. Okay. Do you know that I don't have mine? Why? Well, let me tell you the story. You probably know the story. Maybe I didn't share it. That night, all right, we're sitting on the bench in L.A. You get past a note by the trainer. You, I'm looking at you got a note. You're looking at the note. You go, dudes, this is for you. And I look at it, and it's this woman wants to meet me after the game. And her name, yeah. <laughs> her name is Holly Hallstrom. From the prices, oh, yeah. from from the prices, right now. This is going on during the game. Can you imagine if this happened nowadays? Oh, crap. <laughs> no, I remember that because Holly was the redhead, not a redhead, but yeah, uh, on the prices, right? Correct. So I meet her after the game upstairs. I have my gold record with me, so we go out, right? And so I wanted to make sure she was okay that night. So I spent most of the night making sure she was okay. And so now I got to catch the bus in the morning. And it's like four in the morning. I'm back at the hotel. I'm having breakfast. I'm sitting there having breakfast with her. Guess what? I leave the gold record at in the coffee shop. So I had Yes. So I have not seen that gold record. I've gone online to try to find it. And I've not seen it. So you were kind of part of my story. I wanted to share that with you. And I'm sure you're not surprised that that happened to me. Well, I'm not surprised that you lost it, Ronnie. That I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that no one's come forward and to give it back to you. Yeah, because it's, it's my name. It's my gold record. Why would someone else want to keep it? Right? So anyways, I'm, st I'm still in search of that. And I got one last question for you. 
I know that uh, you've been honored. You've been part of the hundred, part of a hundred greatest uh, players in the NHL. And I like that the NHL didn't quite put numbers on it, whether you're number one or number one hundred. So you're part of that. So, but I need to ask you, if you were to put a team together, who would your top three guys be right now? If you were to put the top three greatest players, either you've played with or you've seen. Who are the top three without putting them in order? Well, I think it would be Orr, Gretzky, and Howe. I mean, a goaltender, we need a goalie, but I can always convince my brother to play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, how good was he? Because I played against him uh, at the end of his career, and I know that uh, he started to um, have an eyesight issue because you could shoot from a distance on him and score goals on him. But before that, he was phenomenal, another Hall of Fame guy. Well, Tony was the first goalie ever to wear contacts. I don't know whether you know that. And he was also the, the guy that created this, the mask the way it's going now. My brother would cut bigger holes in that uh, that plaster mask that remember that plaster one that would sit right on your face fiberglass i guess it was and then he would put the bars over the eye sockets because he opened the eye sockets then he would put a little bar over the by the mouth area and he eventually went into the whole cage which all the goalies are wearing now uh but tony was the first the very first goaltender ever to wear contact lenses um, I didn't really realize that until later in life, after I retired for sure. And uh, it was amazing. When we were kids, sometimes we'd play on the open-air rinks. Uh, of course, we always did up in Sudbury and the Sioux. And, and the guy scored on him from, like, the red line. And after, he never admitted it. He never admitted that he couldn't see but in school, I would go as far to the back of the classroom as I possibly could, and Tony would sit up in the front because he couldn't see the blackboard from back there, and we never knew it. Is that amazing or what? And now he still holds the record for most shutouts in one season, 15. That's back in what, 68, 69? That's back then was like three goal games, like 2-1, 1-1, 3-1, 3-2. There were games when we got seven or eight. Oh, yeah, we had games like that. Personally, Ronnie, I think the game, the way it's played now, is boring. I do. I think if the, if the game was meant to play, be played this fast, okay, without the interference in the, in the hooking or a little holding or something like that, they would have made the rink 250 feet long by 100 and a quarter wide. I, I, don't, I don't understand why we're, we're getting into all of that. There aren't very many plays anymore. Guys handle the puck like it's a grenade, for crying out loud. They bounce off their sticks, and it bothers me. It bothers me. I think that um, sometimes in a game, I don't know about you, I get like, what the hell, let's get this game over with. Phil, I have got to go. It's great talking with you, and I'm going to get to work here and put the band back together with some different musicians. I think we can do this. It'll be a whole lot of fun. We find a good cause, and it'll be, it'll be awesome. That'd be great, Ronnie. If you can do that, 
we will do, and maybe we'll do a version for us old people. <laughs> Phil, the one thing I know about you, you're very immature. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> All right. Have a good day, Take my care, friend. Dukes. Bye. Ciao. That's a wrap for episode three on Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for making it happen. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast, and follow me on Twitter at RonDugay10. Another great podcast in the books. See you all next week.